start with Dr. Avery Lynn of the Great Pilgrim Institute. Thank you. Good morning. It's amazing to be here with so many of you, so thank you very much for coming out in a blustery morning. And please enjoy doodling. You don't need to look at me. You don't have to listen to me if you don't want to, but you know, I'll chat away in the background anyway, so enjoy. And huge thanks to the Dunleary Library here for hosting us in Creative Ireland and to Karen for arranging. Can you, can you hear me in the back? I think. Is it okay? Okay, is this, is this any better? Maybe I just need to... This theme six foot thing, so I'll try again. So it's just a pleasure to be here today with you, and thanks to everybody involved in the organization. It's wonderful, and enjoy doodling. So I'm just going to give you a little bit of an insight into the Global Brain Health Institute, and in particular regarding the creative side of things. But before I do, I'd just like to acknowledge the passing of Chuck Feeney. So it's through his generosity that the Global Brain Health Institute and the Atlantic Fellows Program exists. So the one I'll be talking about, we have a home here in Ireland at Trinity College and the University of California, San Francisco, but there are several programs across the world. So in Southeast Asia, in South Africa and Australia. So there are multiple different similar fellowships linked worldwide that through his generosity have been funded. So the Global Brain Health Institute, as several of you who've been here before will have heard, was created to protect the world's aging populations from threats to brain health. And it was set up now almost seven years ago um, with sites in California and here in Dublin. And this, what we do is kind of, there's a transdisciplinary leadership training program, but also the fellows who come out of this program, so including Karen, who's here today, they continue to be part of a lifelong fellowship. And the global nature of this there in all countries across the world, so I realize I didn't put in a map, but it's in many countries. So who comes together? So we have people from different disciplines, different professions, different cultural backgrounds, and different skill sets. And when you bring together this mix of perspectives and ways of thinking, it really helps create new solutions for the problems that we have. So when we're comparing what is it like to age in Ireland compared to Ethiopia, compared to you know, New Zealand, all these contexts are different. And we need to go and see what's working well in our context, what can we adapt, how can we learn from one another, also what can we share. So I think when we were talking earlier about creativity, it is one of the assets Ireland has. So how do we imbue that love of creativity in other contexts as well? So what is this term brain health? So people hear about, you know, a healthy heart, so what's good for your heart is good for your brain. So brain health is allowing all of us, irrespective of whether we're a young child or an older adult, to realize our full potential across the life course. So it's not focused on the absence of disease. It's more, how do you get the most out of the brain, the situation that you have? And how do you build up your, it's called brain reserve or your resilience so that when a risk happens that you're better able to compensate for it. So this is like having savings in your brain so that when something happens you can better cope. If something happens, let's say it like this. So why do we want to mind our brains? So it is one of our more important assets and this plasticity is important. So I don't know if this term is familiar. So this kind of means, so in your brain 
you have different neurons. So these are a kind of cell that connect together. And when they fire, they send a signal from your brain to now my finger or whatever is happening. So this is how information it is transmitted in your brain. It jumps across these so-called neurons. However, they can be reprogrammed. So this is not like a new, you know, there was a new M50 in Dublin or for those in Galway, these ring roads that you're talking about, there's a lot of planning, nothing happens. In your brain, very quickly, if you put your mind to learning a new skill, I was talking to someone earlier today who's dancing at least seven hours a week. I mean, in, in, there's a performance in a month's time, so enjoy. Um, but, you know, we can all set our minds to learning new things, to redeveloping new ways of doing things. So it's never that you say, mm, I can't do that. That's the plasticity of your brain. It can be modified. And because of that, things that we consider a risk can also be a perfect protective factor. So you can do something about it. And I'm going to mention a couple of these. And in our world, we would kind of say there's no health really without brain health. So this is fundamental. Okay, now this is small, I'm just going to list them. So this is kind of seen as a, I guess, a negative way of looking at it. So these are the risk factors, what can go wrong. And this can affect people at different ages. So things like pollution, not having access to education, also your socioeconomic status. If you're from a higher wealth family versus a lower wealth, what access to resources you have. And things like alcohol, unsurprisingly, can affect the brain if you don't exercise a lot. So on the contrary, you can exercise more if you don't smoke, you know, having a good diet. Uh, things like with your head trauma, like, for example, more people are cycling now, but wearing a helmet, you know, this can help. So you can see in different cultures, there's different things. And um, if you manage your blood pressure well. So having high blood pressure is a risk factor, but easily you can take medication and then you can manage this. Or getting a hearing aid if it's needed, for example. Even going to your dentist, oral hygiene is very important. So all these things are linked. And I'm going to mention a few of these. One that is becoming more common, and I mean it's amazing to see so many people today, is social isolation. So it's important to be interacting with people. So it's great to see so many today. And you can also talk over me if you want to chat while doodling. Feel welcome, don't worry. <laughs> I'm going to mention just a couple of the projects. So the, you know, when I say GBHI, the Global Brain Health Institute, has fellows of different disciplines, we have people who are like architects, writers, musicians, also neuroscientists, you know, people working in medical clinics, doctors, gerontologists. So it's a wide spectrum of individuals. And I'm just going to, these pictures here show, so in the top left here, these are two of our colleagues. So Kunle is the gentleman in the middle painting. And with our back to us, her name is Funmi. So those two are Atlantic fellows based in Nigeria. And there you can see a project that they're doing locally, drawing in the community. And in the top right over here, I don't know if some of you may be familiar with, her name is Gronya Hope. And she does a lot of work in Meath and the surrounding areas. So with musicians going in. And then below this, the photo just to the bottom right. This is a photographer that I'll talk about a bit more. He w went across Peru in South America, and then he started to take photos of people aging well in their environments. And these are very different environments if you're living in a rural or in an urban environment. And this was a project here in the bottom left in Africa with kind of gardening together. So in the Global Brain Health Institute, there are more than 150 Atlantic Fellows at the moment, 43 of whom would be considered creative Atlantic Fellows. I just see someone standing. Are there any spare chairs? I think there's one here if you would like, or, okay, as you wish. Um, 
uh, just a wee point across, um, from 14 countries. So when we talk about, I mean, I believe everybody is creative, irrespective of what professional box you put yourself into. But for this presentation, it's kind of talking about the people involved in dealing with art, like all of us today, musicians, photographers, dancers, also filmmakers. There's a wide variety. And some of the projects that have been funded, so this is something where people undergo a training in Dublin for 12 months, but then they also implement a project in their home country. So we've had kind of, it's probably hard to see, but in the top left, this is an artist, a local artist, Michael Kelly, dealing with stained glass. So looking at interpreting um, brain scans into a stained glass art. We've had all walks, so being in nature and how that affects the individual um, different kinds of social projects engaging with older adults and things that are on the radio, things that have been adapted for in-person and COVID. So oh, there's a wide variety and across different countries and contexts. And to focus in on this one, so this is a collaboration between two fellows. So Alex Kornhuber, he is a photographer, and Maritza Pinatokaipa, she is a neurologist. So they, collab they didn't know each other before the program. And then in Peru, they, through their fellowship, they met together and they decided they wanted to do an analysis of how Peruvians age across the country. And they went out into the community. So he photographed, she was talking with the individuals, with her medical background. And in doing so, they helped to raise awareness about dementia and also other neurological conditions locally. So it was a good way of spreading the message. And as you can see from the photographs, I think a lot of fun was had along the way as well. It makes me want to visit Peru for sure when I see the full side of photos. Um, Alex is actually in Dublin tomorrow. Uh, yeah, uh, Another one that happens locally, so this has been held in what's now called the Nocton Institute in Trinity College, what was previously the Science Gallery, is Creative Brain Week. So for anyone who's interested, this has happened the last two years, will happen again this year in March, and it's one week of a variety of things at the intersection of brain science and creativity, and everyone's welcome. So you can either join us in person or we also do it on video conference. And you kind of hear the difference between brain health and creativity. <coughs> there is, I think it's, oh gosh, maybe awareness, love, connection, I think are the three teams for this year. So anyway, I think it'll be a fun program. So we'd love to have you there. And another thing just to mention that's upcoming and actually going to be hosted here is a film. So there was an oral history project, which basically means the fellow sat down and spoke to people, listened to their story, wrote it, and then had a dialogue back and forth. Is this an accurate representation of your story? And they spoke to people living with dementia, their caregivers and others in the community. So a film was created from some of those stories. Some of it was actually filmed in Ireland and the US, named Keys, Bags, Names, Words. And if you want to hear the link for this, this is actually going to be presented here later this month, so 23rd of November. You can get tickets on Eventbrite for free if you wish. And why? You know, one of the things that we think for arts and creativity, it's not just to tick the box. It really offers hope and it's for everybody. So some of the interventions that happen in the brain health space, if you're fortunate to have good health insurance, maybe you can access it or if you have higher income. But music dance, things like this, this is accessible to all of us, irrespective of our situation. And we want to change the narrative. So we want to talk about what one is able to do, their capacity, not what you're unable to do. So this is also the thing. There's a lot of things people can live well with and to improve the healthcare environment. So also for the caregivers, it's a 
better environment to work in if the people you're collaborating with are happier. And things like interventions in the arts really help improve this. So, the details for those of you who like it. Um, so, how does it really work? Like, what are the things that are going on? So, things like creating music, writing, dancing, and also crafting. So, for those of you who enjoy sewing or knitting, you know, or carpentry, things like this, this can enhance your mood and your mental health just by the act of doing it. Um, it can also help those, not only those living with dementia, but also things like PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, depression. And if you feel better, you're more likely to also want to engage in physical activity and feel more emotional well-being. So kind of everything is in a circle, it's interconnected. It's been noted that for people who live with Parkinson's disease, that you can, if you look at an arts intervention, so before they did it and afterwards, this improves the brain, so their cognitive ability, but also motor, so the moving, and visuospatial, so this is how you can assess things in space. Getting up steps and things like this is important to have good visuospatial ability, excuse me. And then the other thing is, you know, if this is something you do regularly, it's a decreased risk of developing dementia and also to increase the so-called cognitive reserve. So this isn't being officially proven, but that's what the direction it's looking like. And, okay, so what can we do in this area? So, you know, decreases your anxiety, provides more meaning to your life, helps process emotions. And this is something that's important for all of us. From young children, you know, if I'm looking at young children, you have the smiley face teddy, the sad face teddy, to help explain how one is feeling. And to feel more connected and included. Also, as I say, I think this is important. It improves the well-being of the caregiver not only the person who's affected. I think that's important that there's, you know, to realize we're all in a society and an ecosystem of family. So how this works, what we're doing today, it's also increasing awareness of what's going on and hopefully fostering empathy. So realizing better what's going on for someone. So, you know, I'm, my father plays golf, for example. You know, when there's somebody living with dementia in the golf club with mild cognitive impairment, they can still play golf. They just need somebody to assist with some of the things and maybe just finding their ball as opposed to someone else's, you know, so you can still continue to engage. And just like one example with music, this gives your brain a full workout. So you're increasing the blood flow, a so-called thing called dopamine. So this is like a happy hormone is released and your serotonin levels increase too. It lowers your stress hormones, which I think is important in the society we're living in today, and also your blood pressure. Mind you, if you're on meds for blood pressure, please do take them as well. Don't go out like And there's more and more evidence being built up about the benefits of music, whether that's playing an instrument, singing along with the radio or in a choir, or your health. So it's, you know, all these things are very, um, they're interlinked. And that's just one example. But I think here we can talk about with poetry, with art, you know, there are similar pluses. And just to think about those things, it's what's, what do you enjoy? What brings you joy? And just to do more of that. And maybe also to remember what you enjoyed as a child. You know, if you were one person over with you, what would you do sitting at the table with them? And maybe to do more of that, because sometimes as adults, fun can be forgotten. So this with the building of connections, this comes back to the you know, plasticity that I mentioned earlier. But also your brain is getting a little reward, this dopamine, the serotonin making you feel better, 
And for some also, the cognitive abilities are getting better. So different areas of your brain can link differently over time. This plasticity that we have, I mean, even if one part of your brain were to be damaged, you can find other ways that work around it in some cases. So your brain is malleable. It can change with time, which I think is important. And just to leave you with the message that basically arts and creativity, they help build brain health and well-being. And also, hopefully, they can help, you know, reverse a bit this stigma and fear that people have in general society about dementia. I mean, there are more and more positive ways of living well. And I think uh, hopefully as a society, we can continue to do that. And with that, I would just like to thank you all, and especially Karen and those who've arranged today. It's fantastic. Thank you. Wow. So now we've had four in our episode of five of Brain Health, and we're really lucky we have the actual top echelon of Trinity College who are teaching us about brain health, which we know now is not the opposite of brain disease. It's all the things we can do. It's like our physical health, our mental health, our heart health. All the things that make us feel good, they're all really good for our brain. So before we go on to Tony, has anyone any questions for Anne-Marie? You now have heard kind of the same things. One of the things, and it's wonderful to see so many people here today, is that whole thing of social isolation is so bad for us. We all, we missed it during COVID. What do we miss the most? We missed each other. We missed the chance. Yeah. People are kind of, they're so used to that's it we missed it and it's so important isn't it lovely to be here today and we're making new pals and i'm really hopeful and i'm seeing so many lovely faces that i've seen over the last four weeks and hopefully you'll come back next week for week five i'm hopeful that in week six and week seven delirium is a venue and there's a coffee shop outside and you know the time it's 11 o'clock. So if you find yourself with nothing to do on a Wednesday, you might come down and you might hang out with one of these people here and have a coffee and maybe have a chat. And maybe you chat about something that struck you over the last four or five weeks that you thought was either interesting or maybe there was something saying, I didn't agree with that, by the way. <laughs> and that's okay, you have an opinion. You know, all we're doing is we're giving you different ways to think about your brain and different ways to think about your creativity. And as Anne-Marie said, what are the things that you like to do? And whatever you like to do when you were five and six and seven and eight and nine, if you loved having colouring pencils, if that was the thing that you got for Christmas that you really liked, if you still like them, go out and treat yourself. Go to the stationery shop, get some nice colouring pencils. If you like dancing, there's loads of dance classes. Uh, Alwyn Lyons, who we had here a couple of weeks ago, she does a beautiful dance for Parkinson's on a Monday. Find out ways to connect with people. Poetry, music, singing. We had Nora Walsh here, we had Mike Hammond. It was great to see Mike mm -hmm. up on the, on the slide again. Grania, who is a cellist. She's amazing. Thank you. But these are all the ways you can connect. So if you have any questions for Anne-Marie, or if there was anything brilliant, go for it. I was wondering, what's the effect of, so we talked about different physical things like smoking, etc. What about like stress, like long-term chronic stress? What impact does that have? Yeah, unfortunately, this is something that is, uh, it is a risk factor. So the percentages can differ. And it also depends at what stage in the life it happens. So for example, for young children who are in war zones or have, you know, forced migration, things like this, or adverse childhood, thank you, um, adverse childhood events, 
here, you know, if you're in a family that's less stable, it does impinge on you. However, our brains are plastic, they can change. So if then there are interventions, so if people can get support, if they can see a way forward, this can actually, you can help, you know, mitigate against it. And in some cases, people become more resilient. So those who have gone through a hardship, because they've realized I can live through that, there's kind of a sense of um, other challenges that come their way. They know they can get over it. So um, I don't know if any of you are familiar, there is a Netflix series called The Blue Zones. Yes. So one of the episodes was talking about Okinawa in Japan. So many of the people there, they're centenarians, more than 100, but it also means they lived through the Second World War. You know, And they were the people who survived and they saw some harrowing things, but then you kind of, you begin to learn. So yes, I would say that though it's very important to get interventions. I think it can be a shame that people can end up in a situation where then you see there's a cycle going down. So let's say here, somebody that gets maybe in a society where there's more drug addiction and this, you know, so how do you, how do you get people back up to the level of their full potential as opposed to allowing people to cascade downwards? That's very important. Yeah, so that's the question. So how, what are the things that can be done to, to kind of reverse those negative effects on the brain? Okay, so things like... Apart from intervention, like things that the individual can do on their own. Well, the individual on their own, but also I think we as a community need to support the individuals on their own. So whether that is professional help. So we've had, um, so for example, in a refugee camp, one of our fellows, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Hanan, you know, just, you know, talking with the refugees, but also with music, dance, other things, so that people can start to support themselves, even though this is a, you know, you don't have electricity, you don't have, you know, good supports. It's not, objectively, you're not in a good situation. But this learning how to make the best of it, to see uh, that there is the potential of positivity in the future. But I would say that uh, I think my feeling is that we as a society should support and we should, you know, give people access. But maybe that's my personal view. I don't think it's just up to the individual. But I think that the individual has the capability with the correct supports. Question at the back here, yeah. The lady in red, is it? Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Hello. <laughs> I, I just want to tell you about my experience. My husband has cancer. Yeah. I visit him every day in the nursing home. And he was a singer. He sang classical and opera. So I have videos of him. And I played him every day. Now he's getting to the stage. He doesn't recognize himself yet. You know, yeah. singing, he asked me. But yesterday was a completely different day because he didn't seem to have any memory. Like we were going over our memories of how we met and things like that. Naming all the, we were 10 children, naming all the children. But the extraordinary part I find about it, while, while listening to the music, he's mouthing the words. And he knows all the words, but yet he can't remember when he's sitting there with me. I find that because I consider every day I go up there, it's a learning curve for me because we don't really understand medicine. And we just have to try and take every day to come. I found yesterday was completely different. The fact that you just have no memory. And you see, the, the, the people with dementia are very frightened. Like they walk outside the door, they don't know where they're going. And this is his fear of being on his own. I tell him all the time he's in the nursing home. And his main name is, he doesn't understand why we're not together. Mm -hmm. you know, I give him a hug, I don't kiss him because of the rockers, but uh, he, you know, 
Well, he's they're, they're very frightened people. But it's just that I was amazed to think that he could remember every mm -hmm. one of the words that he sang. He sang classical and opera, and and yeah. you know, and then he couldn't remember me sitting there and mm -hmm. asking him who I was. Yeah. Oh, anyway, so I just thought I'd like to share that with you, as I said, but I still think it's a learning curve that every day we, we, we encounter something new in regards to medicine. Absolutely. Thank you, Thank you. different ways to cope and different ways to keep the conversation going. 
It could be dance, it could be singing, it could be music, it could be poetry, it could be writing. We're going to have a writer next week, Kevin Quaid, who is a guy who lives with dementia. He has a type of dementia, which is Lee body dementia. He, in school, never wrote so much as an essay. He, he spent the whole time thinking he was stupid, because he was called he was stupid the whole time. He's now the author of two books and about to get a PhD. Oh. <coughs> with dementia. With dementia. Wow, amazing. Wow, inspirational. So if you've never heard of Kevin Craig before, please come next week. You'll meet him at half past six. And his wife, Helena, who, you know, people come as teens. <coughs> Nobody is amazing on their own. They come with a special care partner. And Helena Quaid, amazing woman. And um, you have a question. What dates did you say next year? For Creative Brain Week? Yes. Um, it's the week of, it includes the 6th of March, so it might be the 4th, 4th to the 9th, I believe, are the days. Yeah, thank you. Um, and just on Creative Brain Week, if you want to have a look back at the last two years, um, there is a website called Creative Brain Week. Go on the website, you'll see amazing podcasts of people who were there last year and the year before. Mm -hmm. So that film, uh, Keys, Bags, Names, Words, we saw that as a uh, premiere last year. It was amazing. Also, Chris Bailey from the World Health Organization was there. He is the guy who looks after the arts in the world, the WHO. And he was sitting in Trinity College in Dublin last year at the premiere. I sat beside him, I thought, oh my God, <laughs> can't believe I'm here. And he had his hat and his cane. He's blind, he's a guy who is visually impaired. Uh, and yet he is the head of the arts. Isn't that just amazing? Yes. And it's all of these messages is, let's talk about it. You know, if you are blind, you have a cane, so people know what your disability is. We know what your disability is, you're in a wheelchair. But when you have dementia, it's not as easy to see. And maybe that's why sometimes when we get the diagnosis first, you hide it a little bit. Mm. But you know, this is our time to talk about it. It's just another thing that we wear on our sleeves. Mm. Any other questions for Anne-Marie? Yes. Sorry, just, do you want to say something about the gut-brain axis? Oh yeah. And being creative about uh, diversity of foods and how we use it. Yeah, and so I'm not an expert in this area, but we do have, you know, dietitians and nutritionists especially involved with the program. So there's a lot of good work going on in Cork with this, with the microbiome. And there is, yes, a link. So a diversity of diet is important. So it's kind of, I think some of our, we've become a victim of our own success by being in a wealthy country, that we can access processed foods and afford it. If you go back to what we used to eat, that is better. So a diversity of fruit and vegetables is important. And yeah, absolutely. And I think there's more and more that that's also when we're talking about teeth as well, the bacteria in your mouth. So there are many things where you wouldn't realize it's linked to your brain health. I think there has been more knowledge about hearing. So if somebody's hearing is reduced, you then end up perhaps more isolated because it's more difficult to engage in conversation. It's, you know, good, get your hearing checked, but it, agree with diet and things like this. And we're learning more and more all the time, but definitely to have, um, there are good microbes in your stomach and we want to go and encourage them more and more. So also if you need to get treated with an antibiotic, if that is prescribed, you need to do it, okay, do it. But then please take probiotics afterwards, eat yogurt if you're able to, or whatever it is, kefir or different things if you're vegan. So there are different ways of doing this to help bring back the good bacteria in your bowels. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. May I just ask you about the third word? Yes. As we call it. Um, people are struggling there as opposed to, well, some people are struggling here too, but the whole community can be seen to struggle there. 
And is there much dementia or Alzheimer's or cognitive impairment in that situation? So, or is it that people don't live that long? So, so there's both, yeah. So what's happening is, so for example, as Karen mentioned, I was in Ghana last week. Yeah. There were people there from Alzheimer's Ghana that didn't know the equivalent of, let's say, Age Action Ireland, if you put it in this context. That, so it's very nascent thinking about things like Alzheimer's diseases and the other types of dementia. That's quite new. There's also cultural differences in that there's socioeconomic differences. So if a young female is diagnosed with dementia from a lower socioeconomic group compared to a female from a wealthy background, um, often it's thought of as witchcraft because the education isn't there. So it's thought of something you did wrong. So there's, the people are very spiritual. However, there's both, if you like, what would be here, more pagan beliefs going hand in hand with Christian beliefs. So very strong religion, and yet witchcraft can play into it. So that can be a difficulty. What's actually happening is through better nutrition, lifestyle, everything, people are aging much longer also in lower middle income countries. So it's not just here. But that means that the number of people who are living with dementia also increases because more people get it as they're older. So you can think of this as, you know, it's wonderful. We're aging, like Europe, or in Europe, Ireland has one of the oldest populations, you know, the longest life expectancy. This is wonderful. And it means that we also will have more people with diseases that show up later in life. That's, that's the nature. So in these countries, I would say that the ministries, the governments, there is limited resources, as with everywhere, more of the funding at the moment goes to communicable diseases. So these are things like um, infectious diseases, for example, AIDS, tuberculosis, you know, diphtheria, malaria. There's more things that are, yeah, that, that is kind of the initial focus. And some governments are also realizing that the importance of education. So if a population is well educated, this helps. Like So things like, um, you know, Many of us here would have grown up with a second language. Many of us don't use, you know. So it's just this nature. So being bilingual is very good. So actually, many of the, if we think of Africa, there's many countries where people have a local language and then a language they use to converse with people from other areas of the same country. These can be different. The more languages you speak, this is training for your brain. So even for people who are, have less access to education, just because of their community structure, this can actually be a protective effect, if you like. So, yeah, but it's... it's um, I think we are fortunate in Ireland that we have, you know, a minister for older adults, that it's thought of in that way in many of these countries. It's not yet there. So what we've been trying to do with the Global Brain Health Institute is to champion the fellows from that country. So, for example, in Ethiopia, we went there with the fellow, with the ministry, and now they have a national dementia plan. That's the first step. Money needs to come to implement it, but you need to know the roadmap you know you want to go. And so we're trying to do that to help the people who are in the local context to see what can be done. Yeah, thank you. We have two more questions. Oops, sorry. Yes, two more questions, and then we go on to, um, to Tony. Yeah. So, and the lady in, in orange, and then we yeah. move on to Tony. Yeah, sure. yeah. I, I didn't know we had a minister for older people, and I'd love to know who it is. Um, can you help me here? Who's the current? What's her name? Humphrey. Humphrey. Thank you. Yeah, she's actually very good. She really is. She has secured some money for dementia funding. Yeah, she's very good. Um, the lady in orange. Um, I have two things. One is that um, in terms of arts in this country, 
uh, in, in relation to the mansion. There's a wonderful play that was written by Rose Henderson called Take Off Your Court Plate. Love it. Which is, which is wonderful and, and takes a really lovely <coughs> approach to dementia. Oh, yeah. I'd really recommend it to anybody. She, her father's a woman's dementia. She wrote this play about it, about the way her family dealt with, the, with, dealt with her father's dementia. And I, thought, I think it was a lovely approach. Amazing. Uh, if you haven't seen that play, take off your cornflakes. Her dad used to confuse the word coach with cornflakes. Oh. And when she'd come in, he'd say, take off your cornflakes. Uh, and uh, it's a beautiful story about how nice it is. Uh, do you know what? You can have a lot of fun with people who have dementia because uh, they're, they're at the stage of their lives where the, kind of, the filter seems to be gone a lot. And, and they're not, yeah, yeah. And, and they'll kind of say what's on their mind. So you get it between the eyes, whether you want it or whether you don't, you're getting the truth, which is actually really refreshing, isn't it? And, and you know, and, and Rose, because she's a comedian, she, she's sister tractor in Father Ted, in case, you know. You know the Daniel O'Donnell ad, where she, she shows him, yes, that's her. Yes, yes, yes. And she's a funny girl, and if you haven't seen it, take off your cornflakes. It does the rounds every so often. Um, now, we're going to go on to our amazing guest, Tony. And Tony Curtis, not the film star, is this one. Uh, Tony has done an awful lot of work with the Forget-Me-Nots during lockdown and brightened all our spirits about, you know, how he wrote his poems and how he turned some of his poems into songs. Thanks, Tony. Now, I always feel like I'm, I'm a fake, you know, when I have people like Anne-Marie who, who are the sublime, and then you come to me, the ridiculous. Because uh, I'm a free-range, organic poet. <laughs> I've never been anything else than, than that. Um, like, my friend Michael Hartley used to come on stage, and you look at the audience like this morning, he'd stand here, and go, I'm sorry. He, he, he'd apologise before he began, because he never knew what he was going to say. <laughs> and, uh, so I always feel, what am I doing here? But it's, what am I doing anywhere? Um, I, was, I was doing a reading on Saturday night, and the, um, the mandolin player in the band, Joe, it was his birthday, and somebody says to me, have you any birthday poems to me? And uh, I said, I have poems for all occasions. <laughs> but my birthday poem comes from it's pure memory. And what happened was, this man called George, and he's on the likes of the Pat Kenny show, on his 100th birthday. And I was sitting at home with my pencil uh, on the piece of paper, doing my normal day. I was uh, working on a, on a poem, Work a Genius, and uh, I heard the Pat Kenny saying to this man, George, well, George, how did you get to be 100? And the back of my head said to the front of my head, he's going to say broccoli. <laughs> he's going to say rice cakes. He's going to say, I never drank, I never had sex, you know, I married a woman. <laughs> what he said was so beautiful. From the first line, when he opened his mouth, he was from Belfast. When he opened his mouth, I started to write down what he said. And here's my tip. I wrote it down, I sent it to the Irish Times, and they got 50 euro for it. <laughs> <laughs> I would have shared the money with him, but he was 100 and was probably dead. <laughs> That's the Boris Johnson logic. You probably didn't get that joke. <laughs> Well, George, how did you get to be a hundred? I met her when she was 17. She sang in the choir. 
one of those voices close to angels. She was always younger than me. She turned heads on the street, my heart on the pillow. Dead seven years now, seven dead years. I sleep with her ghost. I put this long life down to taking time to make and drink love and tea. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was very fortunate I was there that day with my dad. Yes. <laughs> and that's almost part of the reason I exist. It's just, you know, Anne-Marie was talking about a golf club. I live beside the golf club. I've never swung, swung a club, not even in anger. <laughs> and yet, I am uh, an honorary member, a lifelong honorary member of, of the golf club. Because on, on, at the captain's club, and all the occasions for Christmas and for cancer, and all those nights that they have in the golf club, I do the entertainment. <laughs> and it's, uh, lovely, it's very strange, it's very funny. And I get my poetry from my grandmother. One of my, my two grandmothers. One, one of my grandmothers had the memory of an elephant, and my other granny had the memory of a herd of elephants. Between the two of them, here I am. What was really funny was, though my uh, mother's mother loved poetry, when it was hinted at school, she had to bring me one day to, when my mother was having a brother Philip, who was in hospital, the granny brought me down to the that night when you meet the teachers. What's that called? Parent-teacher meeting. Parent-teacher meeting. So the granny says, I'm bringing, she used to call me Odd. I'm bringing Odd down to the <laughs> What's the teacher going to say with right? Now, Back in those days, there was no such thing as neurodivergent. There was no such thing as special needs. He was Odd. Because <laughs> I had a million questions. Uh, every school I ever went to threw me out. Because I had another question. And I couldn't handle it. And the great Irish poet Paul Amin and myself. Uh, she was thrown out of three schools, I was thrown out of three schools. And neither of us were any good at school, but she was probably good, but she's still thrown out, until we went to college. And then in college, nobody cared what you did. It was up to yourself to be, you know, if you didn't write the essay, nobody cared. You just got a zero. And then I started to, uh, to get interested in education. Well, do you the comb row for me, brother? This is a poem called Odd. And though my granny loved to read, to recite um, long poems, it's interesting this fact that a hundred years ago in, in Dublin, uh, when it was before television, before Twitter and Witter, you know, when Twitter was still word song, yeah. um, <laughs> you had, had, families had to entertain themselves. And all the families had musicians, somebody who could play a tune. Somebody who could tell a story, somebody who could tell a joke, but to do a recitation was perfectly normal. Mm -hmm. A hundred years ago in Dublin. Now it's the poetry has become owned, possessed by universities and schools. But in the olden times, back, ordinary people like working class people like my granny would recite reams of Robert Service, Longfellow. Yeah. And I asked her one time, Granny, why do you always do such a long poem? She said. I do the long poem because once I've done it, a 
It's a long time before they ask me to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so even though she loved poetry, uh, when the when we went to the the, uh, yes. the this is the poem about parent teacher meeting, right? And this so this is all true. All I had to do was write it down, put it in the book. Odd. He's odd. That's how my grandmother always introduced me to strangers. <laughs> odd women on the steps of church. Odd men we meet on our way to visit the dying, the bereaved. Someone who could tell her about the end. She never brought flowers. I don't even imagine she brought much comfort. Just herself and myself. She'd point at me and say, he's odd. <laughs> As if to explain my silence. There isn't one of them, right? It's from the father's side. <laughs> All priests and teetotal. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it weakens the blood. <laughs> I raised this lad myself. All innocence and shiftiness. You could write a book about him. Then she would fall silent, as if imagining the pages fluttering. I remember one evening, this dying woman asked him, How is he doing at school? <laughs> Terrible, my grandmother said. Terrible. Only this morning, his teacher said, He's very good at poetry. And you know what that means. <laughs> yes, yes, said the dying woman. He's like myself, useless at everything. <laughs> 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 Chip on your shoulder. <laughs> 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 he has it on bolt. <laughs> <laughs> Pass a woman on the way to the No, and it, what's really funny that the mental health and all that's always been kind of, kind of fixed in my, my father made the gates to the central mental hospital. Oh, if they were going by the central, it's been moved now out to Port uh, Ram, prime real estate. So I always knew it was going to be. But for about 30 years, I, I used to do essential mental hospital. I used to love going through the gates. When the gates would open, uh, I felt some part of me coming home. My father used to say, I'm not risking your liberty, son, going there so often. <laughs> and they once sent three people from the Arts Council to find out why I was so popular. The governor said to me one time, when your name goes up on a Wednesday, that you're coming in, you know. Yeah. It says like Michael Jackson. They <laughs> <laughs> all put their names down at your show. And so I sent three people from the Arts Council to find out why was I so popular. That if they could find out from the people why they liked me, they could send other like. So what happened was the report is one of the greatest reports in the Arts Council. It says that patients like Tony because they say he's madder than they are. <laughs> <laughs> they him out for hope for us. <laughs> <laughs> if this was a normal poetry reading, though, I, I would... Uh, I was just thinking that this was a normal poetry reading. <laughs> you were a normal poetry audience. <laughs> I would have started with a different poem about my other granny, so maybe I should never have to do the one about my other granny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so I was in Australia, I was back touring Australia. You know, I go to Australia every year, I go to America every year. And uh, 
I start off Australia, I dropped this song, I heard this song on the radio from Kate Mosby, beautiful English singer, where she says that all of you who carry doubt, stand by me as the light goes out. Stand by me as the stars they shine. Tonight the stars are yours and mine. When I was a child, my grandmother said, unlike the sun and the moon, the North Star never moves. So what does it do, I asked. Well, she said, it hangs around all night like a poet, creaking in the darkness, making its own light for the joy of others, like you and me. Yes, and then Mar Mary Healy uh, got that poem. It's really, really funny. Mary Healy rang me up and she says, I'm doing a book after Seamus died. I'm doing a book, and they're going to put your poem when I was a child in the book. And my wife, who's a psychotherapist, she teaches me all the time to say neurodivergent, Tony. Stop, <laughs> Stop saying. Stop saying mad. Neurodivergent. Speak like yourself. And, uh, it's really funny. What happened was I wrote, I wrote this book in 2015. And my wife's sister's daughter got pregnant with her first child. And it was all, this was really, everybody's really happy. And uh, her sister said to me, would you write a poem for the baby? And my wife's head nearly fell off because uh, she said, he'd write something filthy about the baby. And when she's 21, she was on family. So I wrote this poem here. It's in the shape. It's in the shape. So I thought that was very funny. And then so I was writing away, the other way. And, and then I was just about posting off to the publisher, and I thought, oh dear, mom is going to read this, my mother will read this. And she'd get the page, whatever it is, and she'd go, that's just typical. Another book that has to be hidden in the fridge. Ah. <laughs> and on the back of the manuscript, I wrote that poem when I was a child, and I wrote it in about seven seconds, in pencil, on the back of the manuscript. I'll show you how. So I wrote it like this, it's a tiny little poem no, with no title. Mm -hmm. right? I just wrote it in pencil. I completely forgot about it. Until Mary, Mary Heaney took it. And she stuck it in a book and gave it a big title. And it was amazing. And I, and I read that poem because she is, took it, I read it now all the time. Mm. See, stamp for approval. Okay. <laughs> uh, I better sing it. Thing. No, I do, I do the saddest poem I ever wrote because what you said was very interesting about uh, mental illness and all the stuff that goes on. But it's oftentimes the government. See, I think it's the government. Because I was going to the central mental hospital one day, and if I'm not being. Uh, this, this is what my wife says. <laughs> if, she back, if she doesn't act in the room, then she's gone. <laughs> During the COVID thing, we started to do Zoom, which is the opposite to a poet. You know the poets invented slow motion. <laughs> so ours should have been called snail or something. You know. uh, she wouldn't let me do Zoom because she says there's going to be loads and loads of solicitors' letters. Oh. <laughs> it's like talking to the television. Yeah. It's like talking to the world. Yes. What happened one day? So anyway, I was only going to say that the line I used to say to people in John Drum was. You better up your game. Because I just had coffee in the Drum Drum shopping centre. And our farm manager. <laughs> <laughs> in the Drum Drum shopping centre. There before Man City to your mind United. 
So one day I was going down in my car by the John Door shopping centre. Flying down the hill. And a politician came on the radio. And the politician said, if the men in the white coats, uh, if the economy keeps going the way it's going, if the economy keeps going the way it's going, they'll be sending the men in the white coats for us. And I was thinking, as he said this, about a woman I met the week before in the Central Med Hospital who was on suicide watch because she had a baby, she got postnatal depression, and she killed me. And when she got a bit better, realized what she'd done, she tried to kill herself. And um, she was in there on suicide watch, and she asked me, will I do something for her? And the thing she asked me to do was, will I go to a church and light a candle for the baby? And I was going down the road and in, in the car, and the politician comparing the people inside the, the, the drone to the economy. That woman who was it, it was literally her life was blown to pieces. And, uh, and he's comparing this so, to the economy. So at the traffic lights, between the red light and the green light, I said, In all the years I've been going through silence, I've never once seen a white coat. Although there was that time, young Lisa inside for smothering her baby and then slitting her own wrists, asked if next time I was in church I would light a candle for the infant. I told her I didn't go to church, but I would. And I remember as we sat there, two faces by a window, lost in the ruins of a spent conversation. The grass outside was covered in snowdrops. Thousand white coats trying to save us from ourselves. And that's chapter sad poems. Every bit of it's true. And uh, I do this one last poem about the institution, and then I'll sing a, a poem. Is that all right? Yeah. yeah. So one day I was going to do a poem with Carol. I did the poem, and it's interesting. The poem. One day I did a, I did it in the central making hall. I used to do in the sports hall. I started out in a room called the snoozling room, which had about ten people in it. I remember one year, about, about 30 years ago, and a new book, and I told, I sent the title of my new book to the room, What Darkness Covers, and a voice at the back of the room said, Spider Bish, Spider Bish. <laughs> <laughs> and what was fascinating was that man hadn't spoken for 10 wow. years. And then I said to the room, let me forget the day, does anybody know what a berserker is? You know, in my poem, I the word, uh, when the sea goes berserk, right? Yeah. And I, it ended up with the sea going berserk around Ireland. And I said to the room, does anybody know what a berserker is? And the man who hadn't spoken for 10 years speaks again. And he said, it's a Viking warrior. And I said, very good. And then the fellow beside me says, we all knew that, sir. <laughs> now this is in the session of We all knew that. And I said, I'm sure you did. Oh, yes, sir. Last night's new movie, Monty Python, Eric the Viking. Berserking this, berserking. <laughs> anyway, so I did this poem called Civil War in, in, in the Incentive um, Hospital. And then after, I was saying to them, when Abraham Lincoln died, 
The American said, we've lost our Moses. We've lost our Moses. The man who lead them to the promised land. So I said, so I moved on to the next poem, and I said, would anybody help me read a poem? And this man came up like this, and he stands there and said, and what's your name? He said, and I was thinking, <laughs> and I said to his mate, what's his name? And they all said, Moses. <laughs> and on his t-shirt, only God could give me this, you know, what he had written on his t-shirt was magnificent. And I said, I looked at him with the t-shirt and I said, the Irish Moses, trying to lead the you know, bus to the promised land, the Irish people to the promised land. I'm not surprised you ended up here. Sent to a mental hospital. What was that? Yeah. What you need to know about this poem is one of my favourite poets is the great English poet John Clare, who spent about 30 years of his life in a mental institution. Absolutely beautiful, beautiful poet. I recommend this poetry to anybody. And uh, one of my favourite lines of John Clare is about mental illness. He used to write down, I have a friend I value here, and that's a quiet mind. I have a friend I value here, and that's a quiet mind. It's the start of my book. In the wilderness. I met Moses in the asylum, in a yellow room that smelt of sorrow. Giving up the sweeping robes and carrying a wooden staff, he was wearing denims and a t-shirt that said, follow me on Twitter. <laughs> in a small way, he was still leading lost souls out of the wilderness. When he stood up, he was smaller than I had imagined. Together, we read a poem about Connemara ponies. Blessed creatures, he said they were. He had the deepest brown eyes, but it is his voice I will remember. It was 10,000 miles of dusty roads. It was a parched riverbed, a dried out well, more broken twigs than biblical thunder. When I was leaving, he handed me a scrap of paper with two lines written out in pencil. I have a friend I value here, and that's a quiet mind. It was his map out of the wilderness. Mm -hmm. ah. uh, I'm going to do that poem with Karen. Karen's going to be Moses. This one. We've been rehearsing this poem for two weeks, so I hope she gets it. Chap rang me up one day and he says, uh, Tony, would you write a book about Connemara ponies for Valley Hinch Castle? And I said, I'd be delighted to write a book about Connemara ponies, but there's a small technical hitch. He said, what's that? I said, I'm from Dublin. I know all about buses, taxis, trams, rollerblades, rollerblades, bicycles, cars, lorries, trucks. I know about ponies. And they said, not to worry. we bring you down to West of Ireland. And uh, we'll put you up in Ballinish Castle. And we'll bring you out to the uh, Man Cross Pony Show, Roundstone Pony Show, all different pony shows. And being from Dublin, I am like say, lovely horse boss. They're <laughs> <laughs> not horses. Did you ever see the film with Sherlock Holmes? Uh, when, when he's on the train, start the movie. Yeah. And his little boy says, it's a, it, it's a, a bee. Mm -hmm. And Sherlock Holmes looks at him and says, it's not a bee, it's a wasp. An entirely different creature. Oh. Mm -hmm. And a pony and a horse 
have two entirely different features. You can take a pony, a pony's have been out of the bog for thousands of years. And in the summertime, they have food, seaweed, and that. They stand on the beach, happy in the sunshine. And in winter time, bring a horse out there in winter, you fall over and die. Pony, and what they look like. So this is what they look like. I wrote this for the children in Dublin schools. You will know a pony by its ears. Listening out for weather forecasts and love songs. By its mane. Tossed over its eyes like a witch's broom. By its coat. Always buttoned up, tight fishing, dusty, well worn. By its eyes. It'll look at you, it'll look at you again to take you in. By its hooves. Made for dancing, it's all worn at the tips. By its mouth. It loves to eat words given the pats of the hand. By its nose. That knows you and lifts the pony's head to let it know you're coming. By its tail. That conducts the symphony of bird song, light song. What is it? Whatever it is. Light song. Lake song. Lake song. There's bird song, lake song, light song. There's the bog underfoot here above the village of Dunleary. Yeah, it says round song in the book. <laughs> 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 what I'm going to do now is I'm going to finish with a, a poem. I'm going to sing. And uh, teaching about the woman back in red. Because I had a friend, um, you know, her husband had dementia. And he used to wake up in the morning and say to her, and she did, when, when he said this, she didn't know whether to laugh or whether to cry. He used to say to her, You run a lovely hotel. <laughs> well, you do know I'm married. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and then, uh, before the COVID, I did a festival in England called uh, Tom Morden, just down the road from where Ted Hughes came from. When I was there, pe people know I do all the prisons in Ireland, I do all the mental institutions. Uh, so they bring me, they put me, like Carlsberg, you know, they put me in places that other poets don't reach. <laughs> so one day they said to me, I did this show, and then they said to me, would you come and do the day care centre in the hospital? And I said, I'll do that. And then, and then they pushed me along, you know, you do, will you do the hospice? They said, I'll do that. Will you do the dementia patients? I said, absolutely badly. I was doing the dementia patients, and it was, it was December. And when I started to sing in the bleak midwinter, the man in the corner sang loads of tears in his chair, the man with dementia, and he sang every word of that great poem. You know, you know in the bleak, in the bleak midwinter, frosty winds blowing, eggs don't hard as I water like he, and sang away. And then the nurse said to me, he used to be a professor at Manchester University. He hasn't spoken for years. And he just, they were amazed that he sang every word. And uh, tell me some of the last things you remember are poems related yes. to So I eat my peas with honey. I've done it all my life. It makes the peas taste funny, but it keeps them on the knife. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's the one I read in golf clubs. <laughs> I did that when I was based on the bus. Yeah. I'm a little teapot. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. star. I see you're full of poetry. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, uh, in the bleak midwinter, has 16 lines. Christine Rossetti, right? one of the saddest women in poetry. 
And the biggest poem, most requested poem in the world is a poem by Robert Frost called Stopping My Woods on the Snowy Evening. Does anybody know? Yeah. I've been going to America for 30 years. I've never found a child in school that can say the poem. And I, go to, I do schools in Ireland, and loads of children can say. Uh, it's a huge poem in my life because I was the oldest child in the class. And one day, when I was around 11, in O'Connell School, Brother Kerry, for the homework on a Friday afternoon, he wrote on the, you had to write out in your copy book. He'd write the poem on the blackboard, uh, and you wrote it down. And he wrote down the title of this poem. I'll never forget the day. Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening by Mr. Frost. <laughs> and I started laughing. Now, this was Darth Vader, right? He had mind control. And I was laughing, and he says, What's so funny, Mr. Curtis? I said, Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening by Mr. Frost. I said, Eating Hay by Mr. Horse. Water Flowing by Mr. Rivers. He said, don't be a stupid boy. Just uh, write it down. So I started. And 16 lines, full shining lines. And when he finished writing it, he turned to the class and he looked. All, everybody, all 49 boys, writing furiously, except me. And they said, not writing, Mr. Curtis. Uh, not writing the poem down. And I said, uh, I know it. Why did I do it? Because everybody knew you didn't volunteer for anything, you, you kept silent, whatever you said, say nothing. This man wore a big strap. What would he do? What would he, if I said, I know it, what would he do? That's good to say. That's good to the class. When I was 11, I came up in front of the class, and I turned to the class, and I said, Stop being my woods on a snowy evening, I missed our class. Whose words these are, I think I know. His house is in the village now. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods and up in snow. My little horse must think it's queer to stop without a farmhouse near. Between the wood and frozen lake, the darkest evening of the year. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there is some mistake. The only other sounds are sweet, of easy wind and downy flake. The woods are lovely. Dark and deep, I have promises to keep, and miles to go before I see, and miles to go before I see. So after I heard the Christine Rossetti, and uh, you can all, if anybody has YouTube, you can go onto YouTube and you can put in Tony Curtis, stopping my woods on snowy evening. And uh, last year when I was in America, they brought me to this a shop, like a sweet shop. Uh, but then it turned into a little studio for the festival. And it said to me, sing your poem. And I sang it. And uh, I thought there was one camera on me. I just sang it and I thought nobody would ever watch it. But there was three cameras. And uh, it's the only thing ever gone up on YouTube that I, I'm proud to admit. Uh, it's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm going to finish with this. Uh, what happened was, when I go to America, the school children have never heard of Robert Frost. So I look at them and I say, who's heard of Beyonce? All have heard of Beyonce. Who's heard of Lady Gaga? All heard of Lady Gaga. All they got. The Rolling Stones, everything. I said, the problem with Mr. Frost is 
he didn't say. Yes. But if he had a son, you'd all be wearing them on your t-shirts. And... He came to Ireland twice in his life. He came, in, he came to meet Yates, and he says it's the first time in his life he had a conversation that he really enjoyed. And the second time he came was to get an honorary doctor from UCD. It's how you get great poets to come visit your college. Seamus <laughs> Heaney had more honorary doctors than most English departments. Yeah. I do this in schools, so I get the audience to sing the last line of every stanza. You know the word stanza? Yeah. yeah. Italian means a room. In poetry, you go from room to room. Is this okay? Yeah. 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 Um, I work with Living Well with Dementia. I do art sessions with people in, uh, on a Friday in a group. Um, 
we have a very mixture of ages actually in a group, um, anyone from probably 50 plus up. I think my, the oldest person in the session is in her mid-90s. Mid so it's lovely, it's a real mixture of ages, which is really, really nice. Um, also, I've done a pilot program with um, Dunleary Rockdown with people in their homes, going into people's homes and doing one-on-one -on -one art sessions. Um, I found, noticed myself at the years I was doing the Living Well Dementia art group, there was people drifting away when the group became too much for them, but they were very creative people, and just the, maybe the setting or too many people was probably causing them to stop coming. Um, and also people who are don't think art maybe is for them, or their confidence wasn't bringing them to the group. So the pilot program was to try and reach out to people at home and also let them know that they're living well with dementia program. Um, there's not just art, there's dance, singing, um, there's a lot of people volunteer within the organisations, mainly volunteers to be honest with you, that are really good core volunteers um, who came back after COVID and actually stayed with us during COVID as well. We did a lot of stuff online as well. Um, so that's me. Um, my background is um, I'm an illustrator. Um, I still work as an illustrator as well. Um, I am a, have got training in occupational therapy. I worked for 10 years as an occupational therapist, mainly with people with intellectual disability. Um, and a lot of people I work and do art with now, I actually was their occupational therapist on stage. So it's kind of nice to not have a file, <laughs> just meet people as people. And that's what I'm very passionate about, seeing the person first, no matter what the disease or disability doesn't matter. It's the person in front of you that you're, you're working with. Um, I work with Tala Community Arts as well, with a supported art studio um, in Tala. It's a mixture of adults. Um, I've also worked with children, but at the moment I'm only working with adults. Um, and we support people in the community to be creative. So they come to the session, and wherever they're at in their creativity, I support them. So I don't teach them anthropocentric. If they want me to teach them something, I can. But I'm there just to be with the person at whatever part of me they want. <laughs> Some people might want to just talk about art, or the people want actual more physical assistant or a bit of confidence boosting. So uh, I'm a bit of a jack of all trades. <laughs> um, and thank you very much for Karen for inviting me to talk um, today to you all. Um, the, I suppose the reason I suppose I'm kind of linked with this program um, is for two reasons: my work with Living Well Dementia, but also. God, it's, it's I think 2016 I started a work on a project. Um, this is the book. This is the book, sorry. It's called Can You See What I See? It's available in your library. Um, I really believe that libraries are a really, really good place for people to meet and access information, whether you have an income, financial income or not. It's a really, I suppose, levelling of people. We all are able to use library services. And when I did my... I, did an exhibition, the first painting I did um, is over there. Um, it's called Can You See What I See was the title, and that's why the book is also called Can You See What I See. Um, my so a bit of background to my interest in working in the area of dementia, I kind of fell into it, like I fall into most things in my life. But that's good, kind of a natural path. Um, my granny had Alzheimer's disease, and so too did three of her sisters. Um, I was just starting occupational therapy in Limerick University when my granny was probably in the later stages of her dementia. Um, I didn't know anything about dementia. I was very puzzled about things my granny did. And I, I suppose it left me with a kind of a, an inquisitive, inquisition of the word, to find out more. Um, and then... <laughs> 
like my granny's dead around 20 years, but in those, I suppose, definitely in the last 10, 15 years, I've been kind of seeking out for information. So this urge to find out information about more, of how to support people who live with dementia. And I, I learned so much stuff, but I, I was like, how can I share this information? Because for me, information is important to make it as successful as we can. Um, and again, I work with people with intellectual disability who may not be able to read. So for me, it was very important to use image um, in some way to share information. With everyone, we all benefit from visual pictures that can, I suppose, enhance our information or complement information. So that's very passionate, that's something I'm very passionate about. So I did an exhibition um, based on 12 paintings, 12 paintings, and the whole idea of the exhibition was to share my learning about um, what I was finding out about dementia and what people wanted. And it was very important to me was listening to the people who had dementia, the people who supported them, and the people who, um, healthcare workers that surrounded them. Um, so yeah, I kind of, did a lot of things. I would dump buses, trains to Belfast. I didn't free because I didn't really have much money. So I didn't free. I kind of sought out and went and learned. And then an opportunity. I worked in Tala Hospital um, doing art for patients as well there, one on one and also groups. And they some dementia training came up and I decided to attend it. And I did this painting in response to the course. Um, so this repainting is my granny. Um, she had a beautiful garden and it was really, really important to her. And because I was in a hospital setting, I was trying to do a painting around, I suppose, people who may be in hospital in acute settings, what might help them um, if they have dementia. But um, I'm going to ask, rather than me do all the talking, I'd like to ask you just a few questions. Um, as I said, the exhibition turned into a book. I was never meant to be uh, to publish a book, but I decided I would self-publish a book because I toured it to many places and there's information on the table there where it has been disseminated, but I got to tour it into libraries and it's very important to me that it was... Because a lot of people don't necessarily always go to art galleries, so I put it into a library, so a few libraries, and um, for, for the every, every Joe blog can go and see it, and whether they look at the picture first or they read the text that accompanies it. Sorry, Cam, can you just hold up the slide, slider? So, in the exhibition, there was 12 paintings, and each painting had information underneath it, but it was an interactive slide. So, one side, that the blue side that Karen's is showing now, told you a little bit of story about the picture. But when you slid, slid the panel across, so if you slide the panel there, the red then just tells you a little bit of snippet of information about dementia. I'm no expert in dementia. I'm just trying to use my skills of being an illustrator and also a person who facilitates art classes to share my learning with others that I thought would be helpful for people in the community to, rather than, as I think Cara mentioned, like dementia is a disease like other diseases, but sometimes it's not always talked about. And I just wanted to kind of create something that could get conversations going difficult conversations. For me, the most important thing about this whole exhibition that turned into a book was I was respecting the person and the people that support them, that surround them. Because we're not an island. Everyone has people who surround them. We all rely on each other for support. Just people who have dementia may need a little bit more additional support as, as they progress through the disease. So, yeah, so Karen's just handing out just one of the cards, the pictures. Um, I'm just wondering, I might, what I'm going to do is, what I normally do, and every time I do something to do with this book, um, I ask you two questions. 
Okay, there is no right or wrong answer at all. It's throw the question, throw the answers out, please. The first question is, so I'm not even going to tell you the title of this um, picture that's up on the screen, but I'd like to ask you one thing. What do you see? A family's home. The labels. The labels. Sorry. Organization. Organization. A tree house. A tree house. You're seeing a tree house in the top left corner. Yeah. Sorry, say that again. The practical laying out where the keys are, where the labels, as the gentleman said there. Who a loving couple. A loving couple. Danger. Kettle. Danger. The kettle looks like it's going to take legs and fall off. And yeah. a knife on the table as well there. That's easily accessible. And a knife on the table that's very accessible, the kitchen table down at the bottom. Anyone else? Representing time, that this whole is a huge sequence, like from childhood to the couple to the person who needs the labels on the cupboards. So the, I'm going to try and summarise what you said there. So the clock representing time, the whole sequence of life from the child to the couple. Is that a Polish, yeah. Yeah. a Polish child because he wrote to Tomas with a Z. A Polish child because he wrote Tomas with a Z. Yeah. <laughs> Very observant people here. Some people have seen things that maybe not everyone has seen before. So an occupational therapist has visited this home properly because of the labelling and how things are laid out. A very young woman. Is that one the woman with the Alzheimer's? No. Okay. Okay, so a very so I'll just answer a very young woman question is that the woman with us for this particular family? Are we talking about this couple with an, with an older person or is this the woman who's being given the So I'm not gonna give you an answer right now, but in a second. Is the question posed is is this the person who has dementia the couple or is it an older person that has dementia? Is that fair? Some people think it's an older person. No. Some people think no. Looking at Tomas's picture, he's only got three little people in his drawing, so I think it's. I think it's. I think one of the parents has dementia. Okay. So one person said they're admiring their work, and then another person has said they're looking at the fridge. They think there's only three people. Well, there's three people in the child's drawing on the fridge. So, more than likely, it's one of these three people that has dementia. It could be the child is learning, or somebody's learning English, because everything is labelled in English, so maybe that's the strategy to learn English. Okay. <laughs> it could be that this is not, uh, English is not the first language in this house, it could be that they're trying to learn English, the child is trying to learn English. Somebody. Valid question. Or somebody's not the child. So question is, what is the man pointing at? Can anyone tell me what they think the man might be pointing at? The to-do list for the wife to do later. <laughs> the to-do list for the wife to do later. <laughs> the tree house. Okay, the tree house. The tree house. The so there's a few people concerned about the cat will be dangerous. So we might be pointing at that. The heart. I was pointing at the heart. 
Okay, so few people are saying he's pointing at the heart on the fridge. Sorry, I heard a voice, but I don't know where it's coming from. Did someone say something there now? No? Sorry, I don't want to miss anyone out. Would you, so what I was saying to you, in the exhibition, there was two stories. And the sliding panel kind of represents revealing some information while at the same time as hiding information. So as you slid the panel across, you revealed some of the text, but you also hid some of the text. But I suppose it's kind of like a metaphor for what can we sometimes, by doing something differently, reveal in the person that may have dementia or has dementia. Like, some of these images don't necessarily aren't pinpointed for someone with dementia. They were done thinking of a person with dementia, but I've met people, many people who've spoken with people who have, are on the spectrum or, or, or have a learning difficulty that, that maybe also work for them too. Okay? So it's about people. People first. So I'm going to read you the story that comes with this picture. Okay. <laughs> Last three months I've not got away this is, of not wearing my glasses. I used to get away with it, but not anymore. Okay, sorry. So, the title of this one is called Love. Daddy wraps his arm around Mummy, pointing to the heart that is surrounded by kisses as they stand together admiring the drawings on the fridge. Tomas sits busily colouring in more pictures for them. They are his world. He helps Daddy make signs and pictures to help Mummy remember. Perhaps the heart is the most important of all visual prompts in the kitchen, reminding his wife of times gone by and that she is loved. And again, some people may read more into the picture than necessarily what I have written. And that's the whole point of this book and exhibition was to get people thinking and people observing stuff as well. When you slide the text panel, so if you're interacting with or reading the book, the little bit of blurb I put to go with, I suppose, to make you inquisitive about finding out more about dementia is this. So again, for this title, love. Clear labelling, glass front presses, to-do lists, a place for keys and postal letters. These are a few of the strategies that may be used to help a person to access their kitchen and maintain their role as family cook. Food is always out, but acts as a visual reminder to eat. Personalised memorabilia can help a person remain engaged with their loved ones, even after memories fade, emotional memories may remain. The feeling of being loved. What can we do as a society to support the family carers and protect this family unit? So that's one of the stories. And just to give you a little bit of a background, a few people have been talking about it's not, there's not an old person. I was very kind of, when I was trying to do these illustrations, I was very much trying not to just put all old people, or what is old, what age are you when you're old, um, into the pictures. I was trying to kind of capture people and families and individuals and individual people who have interests and are part of their community. And this is quite a personal picture because I suppose because my granny and three of her sisters, three of her sisters had dementia, my journey to find out more started with fear. I'm very open about that. But when I found out more and heard people speak, yes, no one wants to get a dementia. And like if you have one person with dementia, I know this is a phrase that's always used, you meet one person with dementia, and there's so many different types of dementia as well, and I'm not this expert and tell you all about that, but um, I wanted to make a very personal picture. So my son is actually called Tomas. 
And some people say, how do you pronounce it in Polish? So he's the Irish Tomas. And I never thought that my son's grandfather would actually mix up pronouncing it. He's Irish. I thought Tomas was a very Irish name that he'd understand. So his own grandfather, who's Irish, kind of says it more like the Polish way. So kind of interesting. So when he said that there, so Tomas was quite young when I did these. And actually most of my time painting when he was maybe just gone to bed, so I was up at night time from 10, 11 till 3 in the morning painting. And it was very emotional experience for me doing these paintings because I love thinking of my grammy and other people I've met along the way who have been diagnosed with dementia. But I wanted to flag my own um, fears by using my soul and, and, and the what ifs that maybe I also was experiencing in my own head about what if my granny and also three of her sisters have dementia. So it was just to, I suppose, recognise that within me, but then move on as well find out more information. And I've met so many wonderful people by LinkedIn with the Living Well Dementia Service. I started as a volunteer and I'm now doing the art classes. As I said, I fall into things, but I found such lovely things with such lovely people. And I suppose as Anne-Marie, Anne-Marie was saying that like, yeah, we, none of us want to have a dementia, but it's the things within our community or things that we as individuals can do. It's not a medical issue, it's a social issue. We all have responsibility to each other to support each other in life. And what can we do as a community to support people and scaffold a little bit while still maintaining respect for that person and the value of them as a human being. Um, that's what, that's my <laughs> I get past it. Anyway, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to show you another picture. I'm going to do the same thing with you. This is the same thing I do every time. But this time, I just want to flag with you. Maybe actually, I won't say anything yet, actually. So, you wouldn't mind moving on there, Mark. Thanks. So, yeah. So, what do you see? Chaos. Okay, so what I'm going to do is, I'm just going to, if you wouldn't mind, I'm just going to repeat whatever someone says, if that's okay, so you can all hear it. So chaos. Noise. Noise. The character is older in the picture. Which character are you talking about? The one in the blue jumper. So the guy in the dark blue jumper in the middle? Yeah. Anything else? He looks he looks if he's very confused. And another comment was it looks like the woman's doing all the work. <laughs> So, how do you distinguish between what, what to focus on and the next little Okay, so the question is, what can you focus on with all this noise? How the possibilities of trying to focus on something in that space? He seemed like he wants to block everything out. So the man in the blue wants to block, appears to want to block everything out. Okay, so one person has said, I'm sorry, I don't know names, has said autism comes to mind. Yeah, with the earphones. With the earphones on, they're thinking of someone that may be on the spectrum. And then, sorry, you said about. She's hoovering, yeah. And also the noise from the telly, the computer, this man. So the TV and the hoover. And the, and, the yeah. and the dog barking. And the washing in the background. And the washing in the background. Oh, yes. 
and there's like white lines for like sound waves coming from everywhere, so the, they're represented by these white lines. Yeah, so the white lines you're seeing um, on the picture, the texture is kind of representing sound. And so the other gentleman in White Top is trying to lead the man to a nicer place. He's trying to drag him out. He's trying to drag him out. So lead and drag and to a quiet place. Yeah. Anything else observed there, or do you want me to read the next bit? It seem unusual in that kind of situation that they wouldn't just sat the person down. Maybe that there's all particularly with the hoover. Yeah. It's like they're invisible and they're doing everything around them. So, I'll just repeat you said there. So it seems unusual in a situation like that that you wouldn't ask the person to sit down when there's so much going on, like hoovering, that, um... Or seeing the person in some ways as invisible. As if the person... carry on. Yeah. So the person is almost seen as individual, that life or house chores or things are carrying on as if they're invisible. It looks like the man was sitting outside with his tea and then he ran in to deal with the situation because there's a tea under the, yeah. okay. under the chair. Yeah, she, she so, and the earphones, yeah, she's the, the earphones which are meant to ease it for him. Maybe the earphones are bothering him. Okay, so three things there. So it looks like the man in white is coming from his cup of tea in the garden to help notice something. Uh, the lady looks like she's on a phone. And then the question was, are the headphones on the man, are they actually adding to the problem yes. or not? And is there another person sitting over there? With the, with the blue, there's blue on the couch. Oh, yeah. So is that another person? Does that everyone think that's another person, the blue on the couch? So some people think it's a, a cushion, okay? Yes. Ah, my ear. I, well, I won't answer that question, but there are a lot of women here, but I'm not to be sexist. How is she on the phone when she's got two hands? Yeah. Yeah. We won't we won't be sexist here against the men. There's plenty of men in this room that all say Uber. And autistic people, autistic people close outside. And people who um who autistic people close out sound. This gentleman just said here. Yeah. Right. So, oh. was, was the man in the white jumper reading the book and is asking the man in the blue jumper to go outside because he's bothered? Or was the man in the blue jumper reading the book and found it all too noisy? Okay. Or was the man in the blue jumper outside drinking the tea? Okay, so three things. Was the man in the white jumper reading a book and saw the man uncomfortable with the sound and got up to help? Or was the man in the blue jumper reading the book and then it all came too much for him? Or was the man with white jumper out having a cup of tea and then came in to help him out? And this is brilliant. Sorry, I, I love this because I did not go into these paintings with any intention for a full descriptive story flow. I have a little blurb in here. But it's more about the conversation and the openness of the conversation because I didn't want to give you a trick question. No, I'm not saying anything you're saying is wrong or right. I want to hear what you're saying first. And I suppose when we're with people who have a diagnosis of dementia, or, or I work with people who have an intellectual disability as well, whoever, we always, like, I think, need to be open to trying different things. I get things wrong more than I get things right. But that's okay. If you're willing to reflect on what you've done and try again and think about how you might scaffold 
or help support someone in a different way, that's all you can do. You do your best, but reflect on what you're doing and see if this works differently. So I'm going to read you the story that comes with this. Okay? Is everyone okay? Yeah. Yeah. All good. Sorry, glasses again. So. This is called A Welcome Escape. Okay. The dog barks relentlessly at the loud humming noise of the vacuum cleaner. Mary chats away on her phone. Match the day commentary has begun and it battles against the radio, blaring out the latest tune. In the kitchen, the rumbling noise of the washing machine spins away on full load. In the centre of all this havoc stands Derek, silently frozen. His brother sees his discomfort and helps him retreat. And the other blurb that comes with Oh, text, I shouldn't call it blurb text. This painting aims to highlight one of the sensory challenges people with dementia may experience hypersensitivity to sound and noisy environments. These sensory issues are highlighted in a booklet produced by Dementia Alliance Scotland entitled Dementia and Sensory Challenges, More Than Just Memory, by Agnes Houston, who has dementia herself. And the reason I did this painting and other paintings within this book is to highlight to people that, first of all, there's so many types of dementia, but also that it's not always memory that might be the difficult or the, or the most difficult thing for a person. A person may, and I use the word may because, again, everyone's different and experiences, may experience sensory difficulties, perceptual difficulties, how they interpret sound. And in the case of Derek, Derek is overwhelmed. But like, if you think of yourself, I get into my car at six o'clock in the morning to go to work or go swimming or whatever. I cannot bear the sound of the radio at that time. But later on in the day, I can. So for a person who has dementia, exactly the same as all of us, but maybe it's just more heightened that they may find sound difficult in different environments or different times of the day. Um, but maybe not as well. Well, I suppose that's it. So someone just said there, why turn off, why not turn off all the machines rather than pushing the guy outside? Well, I suppose what I'm trying to highlight in this painting is that we all are within busy households with different things going on. And it's just being aware of maybe things that are in our households that we take for granted that may have an effect on a person that may not be such a positive effect. Um, yeah, that could have been a solution to turn off the washing machine. Sorry. No, I just want to say it was very, I, I wasn't looking at it from a dementia point of view, but yeah. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. There's an awful lot of noise. You did a, a module on deafness and how sound, and it relates to dementia. But in a situation like that, my hearing aids are out. Yes. Yeah. And at the moment that you take hearing aids out and you cut out the sound, the other thing is about deafness and hearing aids which people get when they're older. Sound is, the hearing aids are just amplifiers. So you have a situation where there are machines on and voices. It's a no. Too much sound because they're amplifiers. Yeah. But if you look at sensitivity and sound, it probably comes in in a lot of conditions. Mm. So that's, it. that's how I interpret there is no way a mm -hmm. person with hearing aid or a sound problem would, would, would be able, and I usually just out 
and I'm out. Mm. And that's just kind of a perception yeah. of that. And th- that's what I was trying, because it's not necessarily that has a hearing difficulty, necessarily, it could be, as you're saying, but it could be someone who also has a perception difficulty, yeah. and the perception difficulty can change. But what I notice when I work with people on a Friday morning who have dementia and who don't, because there's people there volunteering, and you come into the room and you don't know who has dementia. Everyone's doing art. But what I find is, and I've battled with myself, is the acoustics in the place we're doing it. It's really hard to, to work with. I find it very difficult, even if one, two people are speaking, it's too, one person too many, it nearly needs to be. And that cannot sometimes be practical when it's an art situation where there, people are just chatting. So I'm always trying to battle how to make it more accessible to people. And I also notice with people who come to my studio up in Tala, a few people who do use hearing aids and they do turn off their hearing. Because again, I try my best to control the situation, but there's a lot of people who are quite vocal. There's certain people who like to jump or shout or scream within the session. Everyone's accepted. But it's trying to get a balance between the person who needs quiet room versus the person who maybe can't manage that quietness all the time. So it's, it's a kind of a bit of a dance, really. It's trying to get it right for everyone. But I totally appreciate what you're saying there, yeah. Am I finished? <laughs> Sorry, I'm cuckoo going on. We're just over time. Um, Caroline, that was amazing. I could, I could go through six yeah. more of those. Yeah. Uh, but if you want to go through all of the paintings that Caroline has done, yeah. um, carolinehighland.com. Yeah, and, yeah, and actually in the library here, you can borrow the books. Yes. The book is here in the library. And um, so. that was fascinating. Thank you so much, Caroline. Thank you. Thank you.